1: from the nation's capital. This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob White.
2: My name is Rob White, and this is episode 268 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast while we are in quarantine. We're going to continue our quarantine casts as long as we can. In this episode, we're going to catch up with author, angler, and forager Landon Cook, who lives in Seattle. We'll discuss the intersection of food and nature in urban Seattle, Washington. Landon talks about the fish and plant species available throughout the year, where to find them, and how to catch or harvest them. You'll learn about rock shampoos, and then we're going to finish off with some Sasquatch stories. Many thanks to Natalia Borak for helping me with the new iTunes logo. For more information on Langdon, please visit langdoncook.com. L-A-N-G-D-O-N-C-O-O-K dot com. Let's catch up with you. It's been about a year and a half since we talked to you. You're an, an author, and public speaker, and anything else you want to remind people of or tell them about you... If this is the first time hearing you on my podcast.
3: Sure. Yeah, I write about uh, wild foods. So that gives me the opportunity to follow all sorts of different threads that are of interest to me, such as food, uh, but also the environment, conservation, outdoors, adventure, um, really anything that kind of lies at the intersection of food and nature, And it's given me a chance to hang around a lot of interesting people as well, who are the sort of subjects of of my books. I've written three books on wild foods. The most recent one that we talked about is the salmon book, Upstream. I wrote a book on wild mushrooms before that called The Mushroom Hunters, and a collection of essays just on foraging and wild foods called Fat of the Land. All of these books give me the opportunity to hang out with people who enjoy being in the outdoors, who like good food and who love just kind of rambling around on this sort of eternal treasure hunt, which is really, I think, the the best metaphor for foraging. It, it really, it, the treasure hunt activates these kind of impulses that we all have inside of us, because when you think about it, we're all the descendants of successful foragers from the deep past. So we have it in our DNA, but sometimes we don't know it. Uh, and so I love taking people out on the hunt and just watching all those kind of, you know, <laughs> all those bulbs light up that they never knew that they had. Uh, and I teach classes, take people out and teach them about wild foods and foraging. And I, you know, besides the books, I, I do some freelance writing, teach teach the classes and try and cobble it
2: all together. If the Guido Rar book turns into a movie and somehow you are in it? Do you have an actor you'd want to play you? <laughs>
3: you know, that's that's hilarious because somebody was saying recently on that subject that they thought Brad Pitt should play me. And I was like, I, I can take that. that. That works for me, Absolutely. you know? But yeah, there are there are no movie plans uh, at the moment. There, there has been some interest, uh, at least in the Mushroom Hunters book in the past, but so far we've not seen that up on the silver screen uh, and I think that and, and there's actually a lot of documentary interest as well in the just the the kind of the underground economy of mushroom pickers at work in the woods around well really you know the the, the northwest but all over the world I think as soon as the filmmakers start to realize uh, just how kind of elusive some of these characters are they they start to to lose interest because it, it is it is hard getting on the mushroom trail with these folks and I spent a couple of years to write that book you know camping and bivouacking with these guys and uh, and they're cagey that's for sure you know mushroom hunting is the largest all cash business in North America that's legal I should I should okay say. <laughs> yeah so there has been some interest in the past but so far you know nothing nothing's made it. Through
2: all the hurdles. So, other than quarantine, what have you been up to since we last spoke? I been, know. Well, you know,
3: I'm feeling good. I'm I'm actually not in my pajamas right now, so things are looking up. But you know, it's been tough. I think. Um, I think one of the hardest things about quarantine is just the fact that all the public lands are closed. I'm surrounded by hundreds of thousands of acres. Here, I should mention, I'm in Seattle. Um, we have lots of, lots of public land in Washington. And uh, right now, with the stay-at-home order, we're, we're unable to use them. In fact, there is no fishing right now. Recreational fishing is completely closed. That's crazy. You yeah, you can't even buy a license right wow. now.
2: Yeah. Out here, every parking lot, every trailhead, if it's not locked and closed off, it's full. And if there is a lock gate, then the highway shoulders and road shoulders and ditches are just covered in cars. It's crazy.
3: Wow. Yeah, and they're not, they're not ticketing people?
2: No. And then our senator made apparently the most disgusting tuna sandwich of all time and, and put that on the Internet. I don't know if, if that went viral out where you are. <laughs> I, I missed the tuna sandwich. Apparently, uh, but... he didn't drain the can. He just poured it on a piece of bread, and then put a cheese slice on it and microwaved it? That doesn't sound very appetizing. No. Yeah, so He's getting yeah. made fun of a lot. I think politicians just don't know how to eat. Bill de Blasio eats pizza with a fork and knife. Well,
3: they've got aides that are basically handing them something in a bag, right. you know, Um, Although, actually, uh, this was a bit of a feather in my cap recently. I was invited down to Olympia, which is the state capital of Washington, to do a reading. Not uh, known for their beer. uh, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's the water. I was invited by one of our state senators to give a a reading of Upstream and actually got a number of elected state officials in the conference room there, um, which was fun. And so I had sort of a soapbox for about 45 minutes. Uh, and I evangelized, and I actually talked a little bit about the lower Snake River dams, and sure enough, the very next day was when the Fed said that that discussion is being tabled and that those dams will not be taken out. So we're going to have to wait for the next administration for that, I yeah, think. Absolutely.
2: Uh, while, while they're dumping plenty of mercury and lead back into the water.
3: Yeah, I not promise yeah, exactly. I promise it was nothing that I said, uh,
2: but I might have stirred them up a little bit. And, I don't know. And While yeah. you are at home quarantine, is there anything you all stocked up on? You know, my freezer is full of all
3: kinds of foods that I forage year-round. And I think at some point we should probably talk a little bit about spring foraging. I can I can just tick off some of the things uh, that we have down in the freezer. I've got uh, stinging nettles, a variety of different wild mushrooms, from chanterelles to porcini to lobster mushrooms and others. Um, I, of course, I have salmon and spot shrimp. Which, boy, I mean, if I had to pick my favorite wild food of all, it might be
2: spot shrimp. That's the one you get from the canoe with the hundred foot rope. Yeah. Like the, would you call it? Would you say it's a fjord? Yeah, did you? That's the Hood Canal, right? And it's—I think
3: technically it would be considered a fjord, and uh, we call it a canal. It's part of Puget Sound. And did you see that YouTube video? I think I put up. No. Um, it's uh, there is a video. I should probably take it down because this was in my younger years and is really not very smart. I do not advocate shrimping from a canoe on the open water. Not very smart especially when the water is about 50 degrees. But we did haul in limits of spot shrimp. That was uh, many years ago. And And uh, the heads in them that are really useful. Well, I make stock from the heads. In fact, I have several tubs of frozen stock in that freezer I was telling you about. And I made an unbelievable uh, gumbo with that stock just the other day. That's the kind of food that I've been cooking up in quarantine. Just big vats of comfort food, like gumbo, mm-hmm. eggplant parmesan, and my boy is always asking me to make my famous meatballs, and even even like old cafeteria favorites like chicken ala king. I will goose them with, for instance, with the chicken a la king, maybe I'll put some of my frozen porcini mushrooms in that just to give it a little extra oomph. But, uh, yeah, the freezer, the freezer is full, and we've got huckleberries, which my daughter very enthusiastic about and other wild greens and, and fruits and just all kinds of stuff so you know we're we're pretty well stocked up for the for the apocalypse here uh, we're eating well if yeah. nothing
2: else. my wife says we're eating the best we have in a long time we're just missing out on things like we're out of bread we're running out of tortillas so we're gonna have to sack up and go to the store soon
3: well, that's the thing, you know, you don't want to make that trip to the store for one item, right. you know, uh, because already you feel like you're really kind of rolling the dice. And so you got to wait until the list gets a little longer. Yeah. We had a tortilla shortage the other night. My wife was making enchiladas and we, we had to make do, but yeah, those are, these are the times that we live in now uh, the computations are all a little bit different, aren't they? Yeah. Do you all garden? We do. And actually we have, uh, so we live in the city, but you know, for those who haven't been to Seattle, it's somewhat of a residential uh, city, and we're pretty close to Lake Washington. We just planted three raised beds right out on our section of sidewalk where it used to be grass. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the lawn, as you know. As you know, in my my book Fat of the Land, I take the lawn to task in my chapter on dandelions, uh, especially people who like to put lots of nasty herbicides and pesticides on their lawns to kill the dandelions when in fact the dandelions are wonderful food in their own right. uh, We have three raised beds and they're cranking along right now. Things have started warming up. I hear that you guys have a cold front out there. It's not been Uh,
2: above 70 in weeks. Really? Our Uh, winter was warmer. Than our spring. Well, a friend of mine in upstate New York reported snow on the ground. We haven't had snow in about four years. Oh, really? Well, yeah, I, I've not used a shovel or snowblower since we moved in here. It's oh, been like man. four or five years ago. Wow. Well, we, it doesn't snow a lot in Seattle, but, you
3: know, it's it can be famously gray and cool. And actually, it's not so nice out right now. But we did have some warm days, and our garden is really doing pretty well. We still have the winter garden going, and we've got chard and kale and a bunch of different lettuces. But I planted our snap peas, and those have taken off in the last week or two. So we're going to be in uh, snap peas soon, and then we'll get the rest of the stuff in, you know, probably by Mother's Day. We'll get the the bush beans in and the tomatoes and Cukes and zooks and all that good stuff, but uh, we have a problem with the Swiss
2: chard. The goldfinches—I don't know if you have those—they nip out little triangles of it. Really? They will just tear one to pieces where you could read a newspaper through all the holes in it. That's interesting. We haven't had problem
3: with the goldfinches, and we do have them around, but I have to be on the lookout for the slugs uh, because, of course, this is perfect habitat for for slimy critters
2: like that here in seattle so olympia beer for them or are they more (laughs) red hook you
3: know i've got some sluggo that i put out and it seems to do the trick you know it's not any sort of nasty chemical it's 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 something that's organic and they like it and that takes care of them but the olympia beer could be that might be you know something
2: to fall back on i'm running low on beer i've only got one case left yeah that's we were supposed to have a huge oyster party here around St. Patrick's Day, and I've just been drinking all the leftover beer that was not consumed because the party was canceled.
3: Yeah, you know, these days it's like the Zoom party, right? So a friend of mine is turning 50 today, and his wife had planned a party for him, and now we're just all going to sign in. Actually, right after this, I, I switch over to Zoom and, and celebrate this guy's 50th, and I guess I'll just be, you know, making a, what we call a quarantini. Which, you know, is just like a martini, except you drink it alone. <laughs> I just had a whiskey
2: sour. Nice. With Dry that's Fly 101. And I'm, I'm out of Dry Fly now. So it's, uh, I don't know what, I'm still drinking Larceny, and then I've got some Four Roses. We have, yeah. We're have good on bourbon and vodka.
3: Yeah, we're fans of the whiskey sour. That's one of my
2: wife's favorites. And Do you put both lime and lemon in that? She's making them fresh to order. So I think it's lemon and lime, squeezed, yeah. simple yeah. syrup. Nice. Yeah. Well, since you got to jump later, let's dive right in and talk okay. about the urban fishing possibilities in Seattle. Uh, I was able to do some years ago at Lincoln Park and in your book upstream you mentioned it too and Yeah. So we're going to have one about the, the urban fishing opportunities around Seattle.
3: Yeah, well that's funny you mentioned Lincoln, that's sort of a go-to spot for me. Well, let's let's just sort of lay the the sort of lay out the terrain for folks so they can understand it. We're talking Puget Sound here primarily. Uh, And the thing that's great about the sound is that, you know, most of the people who live in Washington are probably pretty close to the sound, you know, Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, Bellingham. If you live in one of those four cities, you're likely within 15, 20 minutes of the sound and you can fish the sound year round with a fly rod. The species that you would be after are sea run cutthroat trout, pink salmon, Silver salmon, chum salmon, and to a lesser degree, king salmon, which you, you really need a boat for. And we also have sockeye. Uh, I, that is the one species that I have never caught on the fly. They just elude you? Uh, they, they're, they're sort of filter feeders. And you can actually see that in their anatomy because they have extra gill rakers. And they eat a lot of sort of plankton and things like that. And so they're not... They're not really bitey, from what I understand. You know, they and they and I think they stay fairly deep, and they just you know they're they're not going to grab a, a fly or a lure. Now it does happen, um, but I think like up in Alaska, when you see those videos of people catching sockeye, I think there's a lot of flossing that's going on, you know. But the other species, for sure, like I said, kings are a little tougher. Um, they tend to be deeper in the water column. If you have a boat. You know, sometimes you can get into some good fishing for kings if they're feeding uh, closer to the surface. But really, the bread and butter for us in Puget Sound would be sea-run cutthroat trout and silver salmon. What would you consider bycatch there? Do you get any other weird species? Oh, yeah. I mean, people catch things like sculpins and flounder, and I've seen flounder caught. I mean, it's a little tough to do it on a fly, but it happens. Then there's others that you know i wouldn't necessarily call bycatch and i don't know anyone with a fly rod for instance who's caught a lingcod but i go spearfishing for them what? and they are wonderful eating fish uh, and just voracious predators and pretty scary looking yeah, they got some teeth they got some teeth and i know that people do catch them on lures and and things like that but yeah other bycatch um not so much really but yeah you know you can you can fish 12 months out of the year for just cutthroats and silvers so with the silvers these are resident fish in puget sound for the most part Uh, we do have silvers that come down you know that feed out in the ocean And they come in sort of late in season, kind of September, October. But the rest of the year, if you tie into a silver, it's likely what we call a resident silver, a resi. And these are fish that spend their entire life in Puget Sound. And so they don't get uh, as big as those ocean-going hook noses, as we call them. But they eat a lot of shrimp. And this turns their flesh a bright red color. They really, they look like a sockeye when you cut them open. And they are absolutely delicious eating fish and really fun to catch on a fly. And they'll get up to like five, six pounds uh, before they head up the rivers to spawn. So they're a little smaller than the ocean-going fish because they're staying in Puget Sound. And, And their life cycle is shorter. I think basically it's about two years in the salt before they head up the rivers to spawn and we can fish for those year round if you're fishing for resident silvers in the middle of the winter they're going to be more trout sized and then as we get into the spring they start putting on the pounds Uh, there's a famous hatch that we call the chum fry hatch and that's when all the chum fry up in the rivers when they hatch out and head down the rivers to the estuaries and out into the sound, the sea run cutthroat and the silvers just go crazy for them. And that happens starting in March. And so people will tie up flies to look like these chum fry. And then, you know, as we head on into the spring and into summer, there's a bunch of different types of bait fish and other patterns that people will use, um, say, May and June, that's usually a good time for sand lance. And then as we get later in the summer, the herring uh, start appearing. And those are, you know, pretty good sized bait fish. And at this point, the silvers that are feeding on these herring
2: really start to
3: put on some pounds. Are these um,
2: native herring or are they dumped in like the American shad? These are, these are native fish. And of course, we used to have,
3: you know, huge populations of herring. Uh, but like everything else, it's it's diminished now. They're a really important, you know, food fish for salmon. I've been told that the silvers, these resident silvers, that you know they'll spend most of their lives eating shrimp and things like that. But as they get big enough, by kind of mid spring, late spring, sometime in there, um, they will switch over entirely to bait fish. And at that point, they will start putting on at least a pound per month before they head up to spawn.
2: Kind of what I'm doing right now with the quarantine. Uh, no doubt, no doubt.
3: But it's 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 really pretty cool because, you know, you'll catch a silver, say, you know, in June, that's maybe a couple of pounds. And then, you know, by September or October, you catch that same fish and it might you know, be five, six, maybe even seven pounds. So they mostly re-
2: because of the oils and fats inside of a herring?
3: You know, I guess so. I haven't looked too deeply into it. I think it's just that once they switch over, you know, it really, yeah, it is a high calorie diet uh, and these bait fish, you know, I think, I think the, the silvers have to kind of get big enough as well to be able to, to eat good sized bait fish like that. And then they really start to put on the pounds. And so, you know, summertime is just a great time to be out, you know, wading the beaches along Puget Sound, casting to fish that you might see, you know, feeding. Even on the surface, you'll see bait fish scatter around and you'll see seabirds working the fish. And, you know, you have a pretty good idea of what's going on. It's just, it's warm out. It's nice the fish are getting bigger, you know, it's, it's a wonderful time to be fly fishing the salt. It, it's it's kind of catching on, you know, more and more people are sort of discovering this fishery, which really 20 years ago was kind of a secret. But now there are lots of people out fishing the salt. And really all you need is like a five or six weight rod. I think a six weight is perfect uh, because if you tie into a bigger silver, you know, you're going to want to have a slightly stouter rod. And also just getting some of these flies out there. You know, we're using um, clousers, you know, with dumbbells and things like that, a little bit of weight to them. And so you want to have a rod that can punch it out there. I have an old RPL Plus from Sage, which is probably a 30-year-old rod that I found in a pawn shop. It's a six weight. It's got a fighting butt. And I put an intermediate sinking line on that what we call a slime slime line it's the clear intermediate line and and they just they make such good beach lines now that you can just really with if if you have a um a stripping basket which i think is essential you can just shoot line out there and and it's kind of critical you do need to make long casts for this fishery. I mean, not to say that you couldn't make, you know, a 20 or 30 foot cast and tie into one of these fish because they do rush the beaches, but I think if, if you can make a longer cast, if you can make that 80 foot plus cast, that's going to help you.
1: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: What length rod are you guys using? Is a little extra length on it get you a little further out? You know, so my six-weight is a nine-foot rod. My eight-weight is
3: 10-foot. Yeah, so probably, you know, not that different than what you're using, what, what do you use, like a eight and a half to nine foot five yes. weight or something like
2: that? Yeah, around here mostly nine foot rods. When I go up to the Great Lakes, I use an eleven foot. I do have one nine foot six inch rod, and that we're using right now for the shad. Except we're about to get blown out with rain for another week or so. Uh, yeah, nine foot five weight's pretty standard. I mean, I always have one of those in my truck when I'm driving That's right. around. You're fishing shad in their native range. So now, you know, we
3: have a big run of shad that comes up the Columbia. we we'll We need and, those fish back here. Oh, my God. There's millions of them. It's been a few years since I've done that fishery, but I've done quite a bit of it. In fact, I, I think I still have some canned smoke shad from the last time I went down there. I mean, it was just ridiculous. We were yarding these things in practically every cast. I go right below Bonneville Dam. That's what? Maybe roughly 150 miles up the Columbia it's it's around June I guess man it can be thick with shad and uh,
2: we use these shad darts is that is that what you use for a fly yeah I've got all my own crazy little flies believe it or not the damselfly works the best for all of them and I use something that looks like a little crappy jig so the damselfly is that a is that a uh, just like a damselfly for trout really they is caught, it a, it's is it a surface fly no it's a nymph okay oh i see okay i'll have to send you something here we caught three hickories and a couple herring yesterday the water's still really cold here and it's high so it was not a great day but my client was like you know what i know it's gonna suck for the next week and a half so let's just get out now to get out
3: well you definitely need to come back out here and fish the sound with me i would say a great time to come out well it depends what's running so so I mentioned the silvers right we have these resident silvers that you can fish for year-round and starting kind of around July is when they start to put you know a lot more weight on so you know in July I've caught a five pound silver before and then you know by the time they're spawning September and August they might be bigger than that but you know the rest of the year they're more sort of trout sized And then, you know, in sort of September, October, we get those ocean running silvers that that come in, the hook noses, and they can be quite a bit bigger. They can be double digit, usually, you know, more like sort of seven, eight pounds, uh, but they can be bigger than that, 10, 12, even 15. Um, And then every other year in odd years, we have pink salmon. Uh, So these are fish that have two-year life cycles. And down in the southern part of their range, including Washington, that two-year cycle is on the odd year. So every other year, we will have a run of pink salmon in Puget Sound. And starting in the 90s, and really up until recently, the the, the numbers were just were heading up. And we had these incredible runs of pinks. In fact, I think it topped out at somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 8 million pinks returning to Puget Sound one year, and that would have been probably in the mid-2000s. Recent years hasn't been quite that big. But the thing that's fun about pinks is they will come right in on the beaches, and they're just great biters. And, and basically, pink salmon, pink fly. You throw on a pink fly, and you're good. And they will just have at it. And, and these are fun fish. To catch on a fly and they're generally around five pounds but you know they can get quite a bit bigger than that um i've probably caught them um i've caught them over seven um but typically more in the sort of three to five pound range they're the smallest of the pacific salmon fishing those um, and, beaches and-
2: do you get a lot of strange looks and questions or do people there kind of just know that salmon is part of life and that's what you do out there you fish for them
3: you know it's funny because you mentioned lincoln park so that's a pretty well-known beach fishing spot for both fly fishermen and and gear guys and when the pinks are running it's just full-on combat you know i mean everybody's shoulder to shoulder i've never seen any problems between folks but it's definitely close quarters you know and then right behind where all you know the action is there's there's a sort of a a promenade that goes by, you know, and people are strolling their babies and skateboarding and walking along and jogging. And so there's lots of people in the park that are walking along, you know, looking at the water. And, of course, they're curious about all the fishermen down at the point, you know. Um, And so we do. We get a lot of questions and people stop and they'll just watch. You know, and sometimes there'll be entire families and they'll have kids and a fish will get dragged up on the beach. And then it's kind of like, okay, time to hide your eyes because, you know, this fish is getting the rock shampoo. You know, (laughs) the tourists are not always ready for that moment.
2: You know, rock shampoo might have to be the name of the the podcast. There you go. Or my next band. (laughs) <laughs> rock champagne. I know that it, it is an evocative term, isn't it? My uh, friend always called it just BFR, Big F in Rock. He's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go BFR <laughs> that catfish." Okay.
3: Well, you know, I think it's good, especially for fly anglers, to to kill a fish from time to time because it is a blood sport. And even if you're a hardcore catch and release guy, I hate to tell you, but you know, not all those fish that you very carefully release are going to make it, you know, and I think it keeps it real when you get a little blood on your waiters and take that fish home and eat it, because ultimately that's kind of what it derives from, you know, putting dinner on the table. And it is a really satisfying feeling to just, you know, hop in my car, drive 15 minutes over the beach, you know, right in Seattle city limits. And tie into a nice salmon and bring that sucker home and put it on the barbecue. You know, last year, uh, I actually caught a king off the beach, although it was on a lure, not on a fly. And, uh, man, that thing hammered my lure. And it was, it was a battle. About a 15-pound hen, uh, she had lots of nice eggs in her as well, uh, which quickly got made up into caviar, one of my favorites. But yeah, it's it's very satisfying to be able to to pick up a nice fish for dinner right within the city limits.
2: Do you have to watch tide charts or anything? So you can be sitting there watching a you know a football game and be like all right, I got two more hours till the fish are going to be biting.
3: I totally read the tide charts, but that's only because I have my own preferences. Now everybody has their own preferences, right? Some people like to go according to sort of the usual you know, lunar phase and and uh, where the tide's at and all of that kind of thing. And then there's some more esoteric, you know, indicators for folks. But for me, I like to fish before and after the low tide turn. So, you know, we get a little slack right at low tide. And right before or after that, you know, the turn, as we call it, there's usually pretty good current. And the salmon like the current because they use it to their advantage. Uh, They use that current to ambush prey. You know, when the water is really slow, I think there's just less going on. Um, You don't see the bait fish as much, you don't see the predators, and everybody's kind of taking a time out. Uh, But once that current starts up, and you can tell with your fly rod because you cast your fly out, and you just watch your line as it kind of moves with the current, making a big arc, and snake that back back in, you know. But uh it's a hoot. So I go typically at low tide. The other the other advantage of low tide is that all the pedestrians are a little further behind me. You know, (laughs) so I don't have to worry about hooking somebody. But I think people are getting used to fly
2: casters down at the beach these days. Do you target them upstream as well once they enter the rivers? I do. I mean if we want to stay on the topic of
3: urban fishing, one of my favorite fisheries, because it's just so kind of crazy and cool. And I write about it um, in the Pink Salmon chapter in my book, Upstream, is the, uh, is the Duwamish River, which is Seattle's working river. The Duwamish actually, further upstream, it becomes the Green River. But as it's sort of traveling through the kind of lowlands, um, the urban areas It's called the Duwamish. And there's a long explanation that I'm not going to get into now about about why it has two different names, but it's mainly because the forks that become the Duwamish have basically been rubbed out of existence. So now there's only one fork and that has a different name. (laughs) But anyway, the Duwamish is Seattle's working river. And so, you know, down where it empties into Elliott Bay part of Puget Sound, right there by downtown Seattle. It's just, you know, it's been dredged. It's got riprap along the banks. It's totally channelized. Uh, and there's a island that's been created for industry called Harbor Island, where, you know, they have all sorts of cranes and container ships docking and where a lot of the commerce, global commerce that you know, moves in and out of the port of Seattle where that all goes through. Um, and you've got tugboats, and you've got people in big old yachts and just, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff happening on the water right there, kind of where the Duwamish river meets the sound. And, you know, you can hear trash compactors going and there's a Boeing plant, you know, right there. And so planes are coming, you know, in for landings right over your head. And, uh, what I like to do with a bunch of buddies is launch my pontoon boat there um, kind of in this estuary section of the of the river and fish for salmon. We'll get a bunch of guys together and we'll launch our our boats and everybody's in all kinds of different tubs you know you've got guys in canoes and 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 pontoon boats and little little power boats and and uh, one guy, a buddy of ours, built his own dory one year in the garage with his son. And he took that out there for its maiden voyage and, and uh, just all kinds of crafts out there. And we call it herding the pinks because we often do this when the pink salmon are running. Because in, especially in the years when we had these big runs like six, seven, eight million pinks, they, they would just be cavorting all over the Duwamish. They'd be heading up to spawn in the Green River, and and they'd just be all over the place. And we would launch our, our pontoon boats, and we'd circle them up kind of. And, you know, it was as much of a social gathering as, uh, as sort of a fishing experience, because, you know, you've got guys, you know, just a cast away from you who you're chatting with, and you're all kind of firing casts out to these fish, which you can visibly see... On the surface, you know, as they as they as they as they hit fresh water, you know, the fish kind of that's when they start their transformation. And and pinks are also known, you know, all our salmon have these these other names. Like we call Chinook, we call them kings. And, uh, with the with the pinks, their their other name is they're called humpies uh, because they develop this big nasty hump once they're kind of getting closer to spawning time. And they get a a big kite as well, big sort of twisted, you know, toothy kite and, and hump. And they, they're not very attractive at that point. You really want to kind of catch them when they're still silver. They Once they hit the fresh water and start that kind of physiological change, they're also just more kind of visible at the surface. They splash around, they jump, You see them, and and it's really, it's kind of sight fishing, you know? It's almost like, you know, fishing to rising fish, you know? And so you'll get your fly out right there in front of a fish that you just saw break the surface. And as I mentioned before, pinks are good biters, and they're aggressive. And we don't really know what they're doing. I don't think they're trying to eat the fly. It's more like they're territorial, and they're aggressive, and they're just slashing at it. Um, so we'll get these guys together on their pontoon boats and we call it herding the pinks because, uh, we'll all row out to a sort of similar area and we'll all be within kind of shouting distance of each other and casting our flies into the same general area. And it just gets the fish stirred up. They get kind of pissed off and you know, you'll have three or four or five guys all into fish at the same time. Uh, and it's a lot of fun and you know, they're, Pinks don't jump, but they will definitely tug you around in circles for a while if you're in a pontoon boat. And then, of course, you know, um, the moment of truth, you know, when it comes time to land them can be kind of... You know, that can be an exciting moment because you got to get your net out. And you got your rod and you're, you know, on your pontoon and you're out there in this kind of waterway and you're looking for tugboats and, you know, Boeing jets are going overhead and you hear the trash compactor in the background. And it's just this kind of crazy urban fishery. Sounds and familiar to me. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're trying to get this pig salmon into the net without, you know, completely dumping in the sound. And, uh, it's a lot of fun and everybody's got a cooler full of rainiers on the back and then the fish go in there, of course, once you've, once you've, uh, cleaned them and, uh, and it's, you know, in, in years when there were pretty big runs, the limit was like six fish. And so, you know, you get into like six pinks, that's, you know, 30 pounds of fish, 40 pounds of fish. You might be bring, Well, not 40, but depending on how big they are, you know, some years, they're bigger than other years, but, you know, you get six, five pound fish in the in the cooler. That's a pretty good haul. And then, of course, pretty much everybody I know smokes them. You know, they actually, they are good eating fish on the barbecue if you just accept them for what they are. They're not nearly as red and kind of flavorful in that salmon way as, say, a Chinook or, or a sockeye. Um, their their flesh is a little bit pinker. They're kind of troutier in their flavor, but more like a trout that's been kind of eating at the all you can eat shrimp bar, you know. And you know they are they are good on the barbecue that way, but they don't have that sort of rich flavor that you know kings and sockeyes are famous for. But my favorite way to prepare them is to smoke them. What uh, kind and of you have? have? So I have a Weber Bullet. So that's, you know, I build a little fire in that thing and it's, and you know, I can smoke pink salmon in less than two hours, um, because the fillets aren't that thick and you try and keep it as low as possible. You know, I'll try and get it under 200 degrees and I'll use cherry or apple or some other fruit wood that'll, for my smoke. And yeah, they're delicious. I, I, I give a dry brine to the fish the night before. So I'll, you know, I'll clean them and fillet them. And then I'll make this dry buck brine. And, and my brine is about three parts dark brown sugar to one part salt. And then I'll chop up a head of garlic and put that in. And I'll use some cracked brown or cracked black pepper. But, you know, guys have all kinds of different brines. You know, I know people who add, you know, cayenne pepper or somebody I was talking with. What did they use? They use pineapple juice, you know, and soy sauce. And, you know, there's all kinds of recipes. But I stick with a simple brine, which is mainly just the salt and the sugar with a little garlic. And I use a dry brine. So I cover my fillets with that and put them in a Pyrex dish and, you know, seal it up and put it in the fridge. And, and basically, you want to brine them for at least eight hours. I'll do it overnight. And by the next morning, that salt has leached out all sorts of moisture, you know, that's in the fish. And it'll just be a soupy mess. And at that point, I'll, uh, I'll rinse off the fillets and then I let them air dry. And that's actually a critical moment because you want to develop a kind of a, a tackiness to it there's a term for that that i'm suddenly drawing a blank on not a fish eater Uh, so i can't help you that's what's gonna kind of form in the smoker the little kind of crusty sweet crusty herbalization yeah but there is a there's a term for it that i'm that i'm forgetting right now but basically you want to air dry it long enough so that you know there's not a lot of moisture there. In other words, it's not like dripping wet. And it kind of develops a stickiness to it on the, on the outside. A lot of guys make the mistake of not really, you know, taking enough time during this step. Sometimes it takes hours. If you put a fan on it, it'll speed up the process. You really, you really want to get that kind of sticky exterior so it's not wet. Uh, and, then, and then it's ready for the smoker. You know, a lot of guys just use like the little chief, you know, but that's, that's an electric element, but it's quick and easy. Uh, But I like, I like having the actual fire, you know, and putting in my, my wood chips and all that and uh, getting a good smoke on it. And then I'll, I'll vacuum pack them, you know, throw them in the freezer and God, they're good for, you know, certainly a year. I mean, I've had smoked salmon that spent a little more time than a year uh, buried in my freezer and found it, you know, underneath something and thawed it out. It's delicious. So, you know, I stock up on lots of uh, smoked salmon for the year. Uh, and uh, it's just, you know, it's good food. It's out there.
2: You know, it's, it's fun to to just produce your own food. My, I got one more fishing question before we talk about producing your own food uh, plant-wise. Is there a stigma to fishing urban? Do, are there certain anglers in the Seattle area that just thumb their nose like, oh, I'm not going to fish where there's the sounds of Boeing planes or beer cans on the ground, and that are totally missing out on a fantastic opportunity? You know, I'm sure that there are anglers who feel that way. And,
3: and to be honest, when I first moved to Seattle 30 years ago, I would you know learned how to fly fish one summer. I guess I was probably still in my teens. And I worked on a ranch in Wyoming and we would, it was a dude ranch. And you know, once the day was done and the horses uh, were put out to pasture and all that, we would, a bunch of us would jump in a guy's truck and head off to the national forest. And there was a nice little pretty stream that wended its way through the mountains there. And there was a little sign that somebody had stuck up at an intersection of these two logging roads and uh, the sign said, "Warning, You're now entering grizzly country and uh, And that is where I first learned to fly fish. And we had these pretty little cutthroats that would just grab your fly as soon as it hit the water. And boy, for somebody just learning, it was it was it was great because I made a lot of mistakes and a lot of birds' nests and the whole gambit, as I'm sure you're familiar from your own first days of of learning how to do this thing. And that is, you know, to this day has sort of remained in my memory as kind of the template for the perfect trout stream. You know, it came down out of the mountains and and sort of uh, purled through these beautiful forests and then open meadows. And of course, the sign saying that you're entering grizzly country. The whole thing was just perfect. And these cutthroat, these very willing cutthroat trout uh, that could actually get you know, fairly sizable up to about 20 inches. And that's where I learned. And I still, you know, carry that image around with me. But hey, I live in the city now. If I want to go fish, you know, say the Yakima Canyon, which is equally beautiful in its own way, a sort of um, dry desert canyon, but it's, you know, two hours from Seattle to get there, burning a bunch of fossil fuels. So, you know, it's really nice just to be able to go right out my back door and, and fish for salmon, of all things, you know, right here within the city limits. But, of course, I'm going to be sharing that experience with, as you mentioned, the beer cans on the ground and the homeless shelter that's, you know, near the banks. And, by the way, um, sometimes we'll drop off some fillets there, uh, which they're always excited for, you know, the Boeing planes and all of that. You know you just have to take it on its own terms it's it's 21st century fishing in the city you know and there's something cool about that uh and and a lot of people actually when i serve my smoked uh pink salmon from the duwamish to people i call it my super fun salmon because in fact that stretch of the duwamish is a super fun site has been for many years and it'll probably be one forever i mean they're they're the cleanup is ongoing you know it was very important actually boeing is there for a reason i think during world war ii uh that stretch was pretty important to all the munitions factories that were operating along the banks there you know there's some history there would you forage in that area or was that like yeah no i'm not eating dandelions let me t- so what I was going to say is I'll, I'll serve these salmon to people and tell them they're eating my super fun salmon. And that kind of spooks them a little. But in fact, those fish, you know, are heading through that stretch of river in, you know, the time it takes for the tide to turn, you know. So I'm pretty confident that and they're adult fish as well. I'm pretty confident that they're that they're fine. Now, I would not eat any of the ground fish out of that area i certainly wouldn't have crabs and flounder and and things like that but the salmon are just passing through and they're on their way to much cleaner more pristine waters upstream where they'll spawn and then you know the the fry that hatch from that will head downstream and out so you know either direction they're not spending a lot of time where it's a super fun site but it is, it is kind of funny that that's where we're doing our fishing. It's, it is not a beautiful mountain stream by any stretch. Hey, I have a place where I can go catch a salmon on the fly about 15 minutes from where I live. And there's something, you know,
2: pretty neat. Uh, so uh, yeah. what are some of the forging opportunities? I know there's some, some people around here that are, are hurting for you know, money to go to the grocery store and don't want to go to the grocery store. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, what are some available things right now that people can start foraging for? Sure, and it's not just the Pacific Northwest. I'm going to mention a few that you have as well. I'm still intrigued uh, by the nettle, and how do you get it without getting stung?
3: Okay, well that was the first one that I. In yeah. fact, there was a, there was you're, a Facebook conversation just, going you, you on.
2: rant on how nutritious nettle is. Ah, it's an amazing superfood, and
3: they're everywhere. Remember, nettles are a weed; um, they're not native to here, and so you know you can feel good about you know trying to put a dent in the population but by the way you can't put a dent in the population because nettles are too smart and crafty and they're survivors for a reason and in fact in my nettle patches i I go back a few weeks after harvest and where where there was one nettle that i cut off the top there are now two nettles you know they're like hydras they sprout new heads we can't you know really do any damage to the, to the nettle population. Um, and they are just full of nutrients. Uh, they're a superfood, like a lot of the weeds, in fact. And they grow everywhere, pretty much, at least in the temperate world. You know, they like disturbance, like most weeds. And so you'll find them along trails, at trailheads, in old burns or blowdowns in logged areas. You'll find them in abandoned lots, Um, construction sites, you know, wherever the ground has been disturbed. For us here in the Pacific Northwest, the nettle really kicks off the spring foraging season. In fact, we're harvesting nettles often before it's officially spring. I've harvested nettles in February before. They're often one of the first little hints of green in an otherwise kind of, you know, brown um, winter landscape. And then You know, they'll get bigger over the course of the spring, and then I have to start moving up in elevation, because I really like the small, tender ones. So I'm looking for nettles that are like maybe 8 to 18 inches off the ground. I'd say, you know, a foot off the ground is just about perfect, and I'll nip them right at the heels. I'll take, you know, a pair of kitchen shears. I'll put on pants and long sleeve shirt, and then I wear gloves. That's how, you know, you don't get stung. By the way, the, uh, the sting, and, I, and I'm guessing that most people listening to this have probably had some experience with the business end of the nettle, uh, and I can tell you that that is a chemical concoction that is analogous to the sting of a fire ant, in fact. It's um, formic acid, histamine, and serotonin in some sort of combination. Now, of course, it's not nearly as painful, as a fire ant, um, but for some people it's very lingering. For me, it is. If I get stung, I'll notice it for like twelve hours, and then there are some folks who will break out into hives and and uh, that sort of thing. And then there are others who don't feel it at all. So, but you know, the way not to get stung is to wear gloves,
0: knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops. Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com.
3: And long pants and long sleeves. And then I will just find a good patch. And by a good patch, I mean, you know, an area the size of a hockey rink where you can't turn around without stepping on nettles. And I'll just start snipping away and filling my bag. Uh, And then when I get home, I will start processing them. And to do that, I put a kettle of water on the boil. You just immerse the nettles for maybe 10 seconds in the boiling water and that neutralizes the sting. Um, And so I'll process all my nettles through the boiling water. I will then move them to the sink where I'll just um, shock them with some cold tap water And that stops the cooking process so that you maintain that really beautiful green color and as many of the nutrients as possible in the nettle itself. Uh, And then I'll move them over to a cutting board and chop them up. And at that point, I might just put them in Ziploc bags and throw them in the freezer or uh, I'll start cooking. One of the first things that I make in the early spring is nettle soup, which I have a recipe for that in my book, Fat of the Land. But it's it's absolutely delicious, and it's just so nice, you know, in, in late February, early March, getting that shot of green in your food, you know, that sort of hint of of, of future spring and growth and good things to come. Uh, you can just taste it, you know. It's full of flavor. You can taste those nutrients. It just makes you feel good, you know. But what I'll what I'll make the most of with my nettles. And the way I put them up for the future is I'll make pesto. And the pesto is just, it's incredible. If you like a pesto with basil, you'll love a nettle pesto. And then I will uh, put it in, take that pesto and slather it in ice cube trays and freeze those. And then after a couple hours, once they've hardened up, I'll pop them out. And now I have individual serving sizes of nettle pesto in a frozen cube shape. And I'll put those, what I call my nettle pesto pops, I'll put them in Ziploc bags and throw them in the freezer. And they're great, just you can throw them in the microwave, you know, or melt them in a pot and just mix them with some pasta. And that's wonderful. But where they really shine is they are the base for a wonderful sauce. Um, Just a vibrant green sauce that speaks to spring and is really wonderful. And so to do the sauce, for instance, and I do it all sorts of different ways, but because you've got the nettle pesto, you're already halfway there. But what I might do is dice up a shallot and saute that in a saucepan with a little butter. And then I'll toss in a couple of those nettle pesto pops and let them melt in the pan And then maybe add a little white wine, just a splash of white wine and some chicken stock and whisk that together. And maybe I'll finish it off with just a touch of cream and reduce it a little bit so it thickens. And you've just got the most wonderful green sauce now. One of my favorite things to do for that is to uh, roast halibut or some other fish like that, white fish, and then put that in a bowl filled with the nettle sauce and maybe add a few like in season you could add some you know some good peas you know i've added spot shrimp to that or porcini mushrooms but it just makes a really just a wonderful kind of soupy dish which is terrific
2: when do you start getting the first berries out there and the first fruits So berries, that's a summer thing. I go
3: huckleberry picking every year, especially with my daughter, who is vegan and loves huckleberries. And that's another food that's got all kinds of good nutrients in it. You've probably heard that blueberries are high in antioxidants, and huckleberries are related to blueberries. They're both in the vaccinium genus. Really, the only difference is in what we call them. So on the East Coast, you typically call them blueberries. Out here on the West Coast, we often call them Huckleberries, although up in Alaska they sometimes call them blueberries, but they're all vacciniums. They're all good for you. They're all delicious. And we tend to go up into the mountains, the Cascades, and harvest them starting around mid-August. So kind of mid-August through mid-September in the mountains. Um, But we have a dozen different species of huckleberry here in Washington. And so there are other species with different colors and taste profiles, and fruiting times. Um, so, for instance, the red huckleberry is the first huckleberry of the year, and we typically start harvesting those in early July. Um, and those are bright red berries, and they're beautiful. They, they tend to be a little more on the tart end of the spectrum, whereas a lot of the mountain huckleberries, uh, which comprise several different species, those tend to be sort of sweeter, and those are the Really big, kind of dark purple huckleberries, if you've ever seen them before. And then there's a bunch of other different kinds of berries that I harvest. I really like thimbleberries, which are in the Rubus genus. And that includes all the blackberries and raspberries. And so they are a Rubus berry. And they're bright red. And they're kind of seedy. But the seeds actually give them kind of good, interesting texture. And almost a little bit of an almondy kind of thing going on interesting oh uh, yeah and then the berry itself it's kind of reminiscent of a raspberry it's really flavorful it makes amazing jam and so i'll harvest those to make jam there's all kinds of different berries and then you know we were famous in the northwest for our blackberries both native and non-native blackberries and so we always put up tons of blackberries and with the berries i'll put them in a single layer on a baking sheet, and put those in the freezer. So I have individually frozen berries, and then I'll scrape them off into Ziploc bags. And and uh, so we have berries year round. We just take them out of the freezer, and you know, can make smoothies or desserts with
2: them or whatever. We used um, to have mayor for life here, Marion Barry. We're yeah, just, so the Marion Barry mayor from D.C. Oh,
3: <laughs> that Marion Barry. That's yeah. right. Oh my God! I forgot about him. Yeah. Now, the Marionberry out here is a hybrid blackberry, and I, it's a some sort of hybrid with blackberry and red raspberry. But uh, and then there's Boysenberry and, and Loganberry. Those are all hybrid uh, berries with blackberry in them. That's right, Marionberry. Yeah. Was. The other thing I was going to mention. after. After the nettles, and you know, you probably get your nettles a little later than us. I'm get, I'm, I'm guessing. Maybe, maybe not. When, when do your nettles first start appearing?
2: I don't really get out to that. Those are more upriver. No, they're not really. They don't really grow along the tidal section of the Potomac where I'm mostly at. Once you get up to the small mouth, you find them. Or if you go blue lining up in the parks for brook trout, you'll find them really heavily up there.
3: Yeah, but you know, I bet you you have nettles down in town i'm gonna start looking for them because we have them right in the green spaces all over seattle i mean they're everywhere
2: so they're right at sea level as well we have so much arugula in our garden that we don't really need any other greens right now we are we probably have Uh, i can tell you how many plants i planted it five years ago and it just seeds itself two to three times a year the neighbors just come with scissors and just cut bunches and they're not making a dent itself nice
3: i love that i'm a huge fan of arugula you know, we also have, so another native green that we have that we start looking for after the nettles have come up. In fact, there should be lots of it right now, if I was allowed to get out onto our public lands, but is miner's lettuce. Um, miner's lettuce is a native green. Uh, it's called miner's lettuce because the gold miners in the mid-1800s would eat it for, as a source of vitamin C, to prevent scurvy. We have miner's lettuce all over the woods and it's it's absolutely delicious. I don't know if you've ever seen it in restaurants. I'm um, looking
2: at it, it's pretty, it looks like little kind of concave umbrellas.
3: Yeah, like little umbrellas. And there's actually two different species. Um, there's another called Siberian miner's lettuce, which is also native, which has a different shape to it, more of a sickle shape. But both of those are available in and around Seattle and we harvest those. And then we harvest fiddleheads as well. And you have fiddleheads, but you have a different species. Actually, I don't know if you do have fiddleheads where you are.
2: I know that they're… I don't, I don't care for the taste. I've eaten them before. Okay. They're too earthy. Okay. So I don't you know do, if they're edible. I've had them in restaurants. But, yeah, we have ferns growing along all okay. the creeks here. Some of them up to you know three and a half feet tall. Because on the east coast,
3: it's the ostrich fern. That's the one that produces the fiddlehead. On the west coast, it's the lady fern. It's a different species. And I know what you mean. It is a flavor that maybe takes a little bit of getting used to. And, you know, when I take people out on my field trips and my classes, I remind them that, you know, bitter is a flavor that, you know, our our ancestors were looking for, because generally that indicated a food had a lot of nutrients in it. Now, of course, our tastes have changed and our palate, especially like sweet foods now, because of all the high fructose corn syrup and big macs and stuff like that that we eat but but if you can kind of learn to love kale then you would love dandelions i think you would like fiddleheads you would like miner's lettuce and some other foods that tend to be a little bit more on the bitter end of the spectrum but are still quite delicious and hey they're free and especially now you know with everything that's going on, the idea of being able to go out and get some food for yourself—that's you know nutritious uh, and doesn't involve going to the grocery store—that's kind of a that's kind of a bonus, right? Mm-hmm. You right. know, and then and then we haven't talked about mushrooms. Maybe that's another day. Yeah,
2: uh, but we when do have. Our- to your party, I've got some random questions we'll ask before we get to your. Fiftieth. Okay. Okay. Uh, when you're eating ice cream, do you prefer a cake or sugar cone? <laughs> you you didn't give me a heads up about these questions. No, everything else I gave you a heads up on. <laughs> okay.
3: Um, I would say I prefer a sugar cone, you know, but I, I have to compete with my kids here who clean out the ice cream as soon as we get it. And we tend to be partisans of Ben and Jerry's because that's what we had, you know, in the dining hall when I was going to college in Vermont. Uh, and we used to get seconds from Ben and Jerry's. And you know what a second is? Just it's usually mislabel. like, well,
2: or the no. like flavors they didn't end up making.
3: Well, let's just imagine a second for, um, cookie dough. That would be a, uh pint that just had too much cookie. Oh, in it. That so it became a second. I know, I know. And so we, we had free ice cream in the dining halls. It gave new meaning to the freshman 15 for sure. But yeah, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a cone guy, I have to say, not a cake
2: guy. If you could have been quarantined anywhere else with amazing fishing that you're allowed to fish for, where would you choose? This is sort of the Groundhog Day. If you were stuck somewhere like Punxsutawney, but you could choose where you were going to be stuck, where would you want to be?
3: Oh, man. Well, you know, I'm going to have to choose something from the bucket list you know, that I know nothing about, but that sounds pretty good. And that might have corresponded to the season, although I don't even know. I've always wanted to go bone fishing and to do it in a place like, you know, Mexico or Belize or, you know, the Bahamas or somewhere like that. Um, And so I think, you know, being in a warm place with some flats and some willing bonefish, you know, would be the way to go. I can't say Alaska because it's too early, you know, unless you get out on the high seas right now. If we had been quarantined in August, then maybe it would be, you know, somewhere in Alaska to fish for silvers.
2: But no, I, I think it, it would be nice. Have you ever been bone fishing? I have, not successfully. I've gone in Hawaii, DIY, and I spent some time working in the Keys. So I only really went out with the store manager who was a crazy man, which was alluded to a couple of weeks ago with the Paul Dixon podcast. I, I, the deal was I stayed in this condo for free if I cleaned it. We had no furniture. Everything was from the pool deck. The TV was on the foot pedestal you would stand on on a flats boat. And I was not allowed to mop with a mop. I had to use hand towels. But I was living in Florida for free for a while, so I didn't complain.
3: Yeah, you know that's as far south as I've ever fished, and I've done a little bit of
2: beach fishing in Florida,
3: and I've caught some fun things on the fly. But uh, but I was north of the bonefish zone, so so I have yet to do that. Um, it's definitely on the bucket list, um, and you know it would be nice to be in a warm, sunny place right
2: now. Yes, you know quarantined. Um, Darn, you know, don't have to go anywhere. I sit on my driveway every afternoon, bundled up reading while my kid plays. She's only child, so I'm her entertainment all day. And the county electronic school distance learning has failed all three times they've tried to implement it at home, so. You know, my
3: daughter's doing the remote learning. She says she prefers it, so <laughs> she's like you know, one in a hundred. Uh, my boy is home from college and of course he's pretty bummed about that. So yeah, I, I feel for him. At least he's just a freshman. You know, I really feel for the kids in high school and college who are seeing I'm stuck
2: at home, yeah. you know? All right, next question. You may have alluded to this already, but, Any other? but what's that? Any other questions? I got a couple more. If
3: I lost you there.
2: If you only had one type of soup to eat, what would it be?
3: Ooh, you know, I'm going to betray my, well, no, I won't, I won't, I, I, I'm a, I, I think I would have to go with New England clam chowder. Okay. Although, and I may, I use our West Coast razor clams to make a, a pretty mean New England chowder with the local clam that's in the book Uh, too i think it is but you know lately i've been making cod chowders and so it's a little bit of a toss-up between those two but i'm i've always my grandmother who lived on cape cod um would make us every time we visited she made chowder and so i've got i've got a special place in my heart for that Mm -hmm. so so, yeah, I'm going with the chowder. Ch- I'm going with the chowder. Chowder. What's your, say it, Frenchie, chowder. What's your most played album? Well, I'm, I'm sad to say that, uh, you know, all my albums. Are digital now? Are, are in my parents' house. Yeah. And I heard from my brother recently that he found them. Somebody had moved them from what used to be my room, and then I guess it got turned into a guest room, out into a shed. And I asked them, I asked my brother, well, can you, you know, mail them to us? Because my daughter is really getting into vinyl now. And he said, I don't think so. In fact, I don't think they would make it. They're pretty much covered with moss and mildew now. I know. And I had a pretty substantial record collection. Unfortunately, there are no albums being played here. We, we are digital at this point. Boy, what would be my most... So, so, no albums involved here. But, and, you know, it would be nothing with an official release either. Because, and now I'm going to date myself, but I'm an old deadhead. And so... I still love putting on The Boys and, and, and digging deep into the archive that archive. is available. Org. Yeah. Uh, on the internet, just, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, picking something out of the archive and putting it on. So, so I would say, while no single album is the winner, I, the archive is still kind of my comfort
2: zone <laughs> and gets a lot of use. Other than records, do you collect anything? I'm not a collector, really.
3: No, I never really have been a collector. You know, I, no, I let's just leave it at that. I, I'm not a collector. I, I, I like going out into the natural world and kind of cataloging things, if that makes sense. And I love, like, the other day, I, I will admit that I did break quarantine and I snuck out to a stretch of high high desert where I didn't think I would be bothering anybody. And it was probably closed. Nobody was around. And this time of year in the spring, when the high desert is just starting to bloom, it's so beautiful. And I, I mean, it's something I do every year and I just had to get out there. And I just started taking pictures of all the wildflowers. And many of them I was able to identify, but those that I couldn't, I um, I came home and now I I use the newfangled technology of, of Google Lens to help me figure out what some of them were and went through my field guides as well and that's kind of the extent of the collecting that I do you know
2: um, that's a roundabout way of it's trying to make end. your wife happy not to have clutter Good. I used to collect snow globes I had so many of them. And then I think my parents just got rid of them when I went to college. Ugh, really? Hundreds of them. You're kidding. That's terrible. Yeah. What would that be worth on eBay today? I don't know. There are some pretty cool ones. The Las Vegas one had dice that you would shake in it. Yeah, there are some pretty cool snow globes. That's kind of a weird uh, hobby.
3: I, I'm not even going to try and do a Freudian analysis yeah. of that.
2: All right. Uh, what is your favorite hot sauce? Um, my favorite hot sauce.
3: I, you know, for my gumbo, I use Frank's Red Hot Sauce. Familiar with that one? Mm-hmm. Pretty standard. I'm not an esoteric hot sauce connoisseur. Do you put hot sauce on your oysters? I do not. I actually wrote about that in my first book, Fat of the Land. Delicious. Um, yeah, um, I like an oyster neat. Or maybe maybe with a very gentle mignonette made with a little champagne vinegar and some lemon. But typically, you know, I'll have hot sauce. You know, I do actually cook a lot of spicy food. Uh, I'm really into cooking Sichuan food. And so I'll use hot chilies and Sichuan peppercorn. peppercorn man, those things,
2: we've made Sichuan peppercorn-infused vodka. Which was bizarre, because it was like drinking Novocaine. Your mouth got all numb. We made Bloody that, Mary's with it. Oh, nice.
3: Yeah, the Novocaine, that's a little weird, you know. It, you know, the, the Chinese call that mala, which is the combination of hot and numbing. You know, I'll have people over for dinner and serve them up some Sichuan, and there's always one who just can't handle the mala. You know, it's just, it's too, it's too foreign yeah. for them, you know, um, but I'm not, I'm not like a, a huge hot sauce person because if I'm cooking spicy food, it'll be in there just through the sort of natural ingredients. You know, with my gumbo, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a little Frank's red hot sauce on there with, uh, you know, with tacos and things like that. I don't even... I, I actually have some hot sauces in my cupboard that have been made by my friends. One with the ghost chilies. And, uh, and so really, I guess I'm just, I'm sort of using these homemade hot sauces.
2: I've got uh, ghost chili seeds on my desk somewhere over here. One of my clients, Joe, gave me. My yes, wife put the... They're hot. He ground some of the powder up and she put it in ketchup the other night. And she said that was not uh, a pleasant thing to have done. She did not enjoy that experience. And she likes a hot sauce. Here we go. Oh, no, these are Carolina Reapers. I've got three I've Carolina Reaper ghost, seeds. I've seen ghost chili,
3: ghost chili ice cream before. Ugh. Yeah. It doesn't
2: sound appetizing, but actually it's not bad. All right. <laughs> uh, second and last question probably asked this last time, but since I spoke last, where's the, the best sandwich in the Seattle area? Well, there's a sort of a well-known sandwich shop called
3: Paseo. Now, they, it changed hands recently, but it's still pretty good. They have a couple of locations, and basically what they do is, and they have a bunch of different sandwiches, but, but the general outline is this. They'll take some nice pork shoulder, and grill it up um, with their sort of special marinade and throw it on some really good bread that's made at this bakery called Macrina and slather that with their own special sauce, and they'll add some jalapeno peppers to that and some other condiments. And it's just
2: just an amazing sandwich. I'm looking Uh, it up. The sandwich looks crazy good, but they also have a tiki bar?
3: Uh, you know, I've only done takeout there, so maybe they do have a tiki bar now. That would be something that the new
2: owners have instituted. I hope they're doing takeout orders. Here you can buy jugs of margaritas to go at restaurants. Really? There's a Artie's down the street. It's a high-end bar. They're doing on Monday dollar pints to go of craft beer and go cups.
3: Yeah, I've heard of restaurants here for the quarantine Basically, putting they can't sell the alcohol, but they're putting together the cocktail sort of packages, you know, enough to to make you know maybe a dozen, fifteen cocktails, and then you just add your own booze to it. Um, So you know, restaurants are getting creative. There's a lot of takeout happening, drive up, you know, that sort of thing. I just hope that I know a lot of people in the restaurant industry Out here, and and I hope they make it because these are tough times for sure. Absolutely.
2: All right, my last question I need a story that you had to have been there to believe it. I know you got Sasquatch up there. You haven't written about CN1, but maybe you actually did. (laughs) I personally have
3: not had a run in with Sasquatch. I actually know somebody who. insists that not only has he seen Sasquatch, but in fact, he's seen a whole family of them. This is an interesting guy. He lives out near a community called Republic. Republic, Washington is in northeastern Washington. It's pretty remote. Northeast Washington is where we have, uh, you know, the wolf has returned to Washington, which is somewhat controversial. But we have a number. I think we have a couple of dozen wolf packs now. Uh, most of them are in northeast Washington, so that tells you a little bit about that area. Not too many people up there, and uh, and just you know a lot of a lot of land. And this guy has a cabin, and he lives outside the town of Republic, and he tell stories about seeing entire families of Sasquatch that he has caught on Critter Cam. Now, none of us have seen any of these films. In fact, I don't think anybody has seen them, but he has had even the TV show. I forget oh. what it's called, um, but you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, right? The Sasquatch, Sasquatch Hunters. Sasquatch hunt. yeah, one of those. Yeah, we have been out to visit him. And he, now, he takes it a step further he says that he can actually communicate with them as well. And that for whatever reason, he has some sort of antenna. This is uh, like the new Tiger King. This is a guy, I met him in the mushroom community. He's a morel hunter. There's some good morel hunting out there, especially when, uh, after there's been wildfire. And, and so I got a chance to spend a little time with him while cooking morels for breakfast. Uh, one morning, and that's when he told me about his run-ins with the various Bigfoots that are known to be, you know, lumbering around out there in northeast
2: Washington. You might be eating the wrong fungi. You know, um something. The, the thought
3: occurred to me: the <laughs> psilocybin or psilocybin is something. Yeah, that-
2: psilocybin.
3: Yes. Yeah. He might, he might be eating some of the wavy caps or the Liberty caps as, as they're known, but yeah, you run into all kinds in the mushroom community, like the fishing community. Uh, and, um, you know, it keeps me endlessly entertained hanging out with those sorts of people. Fantastic.
2: All right. Well, that, that sort of wraps up my questions. Where can listeners find you, read your books, follow your adventures? Well, I'm out here in Seattle. You know, they
3: can check in with their local independent bookstore and see if there are any copies of my books there. And if not, they can always order them through their local bookstore. Or um, they can go on Amazon and find the books there. But they're out there. And so, you know, I love to hear from folks. So, if you buy a copy and read it and want to shoot me an email, I'd love to hear from you. Working on a new book, which I'm not talking about yet. Maybe next time we talk, Rob, um, I will be ready for the reveal. Sounds good. We'll talk mushroom hunting then as well. Bar-free. And you know, if you ever want to come out and do a little fishing on Puget Sound, oh yeah, you let me know. But, you know, August, September, is that would be
2: sort of prime time. Never Uh, caught a wild salmon, only the Great Lakes version. Well, then you need to make a trip out here, and we'll hit the beach. Uh,
3: It's super fun, Um, and uh, when you get one on the line out in the salt, when they're still, you know, bright and silver and hunting bait fish, I mean, they go, you know, and on a six-weight rod, it's a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, come on out. All right, well, thank you so much for your time, and drink one for me tonight during your quarantine party with the birthday boy.
3: I sure will. Hey, it's good uh, talking to you again, Rob. Good luck with uh, with the rest of your quarantine. Uh, let's hope that we get to the other side soon. Absolutely.
2: All right. All right. We'll Thank you so much. All right. Take
3: okay. care. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information, or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com.
0: Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby, 6-8 Western. I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.